Hi, this is Rob Reynolds, and you're listening to Education and Technology Futures, a weekly podcast that highlights interesting trends and connections in the worlds of education, technology, and culture. Chapter 1. Everything's a Content Channel Back in 1988, a friend of mine, an engineer from Motorola at the time, told me that smart money should always flow towards software instead of hardware. In his words, you have to sell way too many truckloads of computers to make any money. I've thought about that conversation plenty over the ensuing decades, as different companies have released revolutionary hardware only to see that hardware transform into a channel for a bigger play in software or content. We've certainly seen that play out with computers, and also in gaming consoles and VR headsets. Over time, companies lower the price of their revolutionary hardware to gain more customers who will consume their software, content, or other services. We see the same thing happening these days in the smartphone sector. Makers of high-end smartphones, typically costing between $1,000 and $1,300, are introducing new models with most of the same bells and whistles, but for half the price. To break into the price-sensitive smartphone market in India, for example, Samsung and Qualcomm are introducing models that can compete with an average purchase price of $159. Heck, even Apple has announced that it's beginning to work on a smaller and cheaper version of the iPhone. So how will producers of these revolutionary mobile devices make money? Simple through app stores, content subscriptions, and other services. These days, any popular apparatus or device is a good candidate to become a content and services channel. Peloton's financial growth will be driven by monthly subscriptions to workout videos that are integrated with its bikes and treadmills. Elon Musk envisions every Tesla car as a mobile movie theater. By the way, it's not hard to see some parallels here with the education industry. In the traditional models, we have schools and campuses that serve as channels for delivering content to local participants. In these models, institutions and schools and their existing infrastructures, their buildings and classrooms, have served as the traditional hardware. And like any other technology, originally this hardware was the main focus, the primary way to reach an audience. It was the thing. Today, however, we see this model evolving. With new technologies, this infrastructure for many institutions is being transformed into a powerful channel to reach new audiences across the globe. Increasingly, that model is evolving to one that is less local. Schools and institutions are becoming conduits for new types of learning being distributed to learners on a much broader scale. This week, Coursera announced that, in partnership with the University of North Texas, it will be offering an online bachelor's degree for adult learners looking to complete their education. This is just another example of how universities and their campuses can become channels for delivering their content and services to a much wider and more strategic reach. As with every other industry, 
I have to think that this is and will be the new normal for higher ed institutions looking to remain relevant in the 21st century. Chapter 2 Optical Illusions in Markets and Education Everyone, kids and adults alike, loves a good optical illusion. I still remember a room in my grandmother's house that had a framed print of Charles Allen Gilbert's All is Vanity illustration. My first impression of the piece, as a small child, was that it depicted a frightening skull. Once I realized that, up close, it was actually an image of a woman sitting at her vanity, I became fascinated with the illusion. As I grew older, I realized that perceptual illusions occur everywhere, including nature, art, and information. As humans, we're susceptible to them for a variety of reasons. One reason is that we generally insist on mapping what we perceive to what we're most familiar with, what we're experiencing right now. We also tend to be prejudiced by how we think things should be or appear, rather than how they actually are. For example, I've operated under the assumption for the past several years that credit cards and other non-cash forms of payment have already replaced cash as the primary way that people in the U.S. conduct their day-to-day -day transactions. Turns out, that isn't so. Cash actually remains the most popular form of payment for purchases by number. In this case, my misperception of reality is due to personal preference and experience. Another example can be found in electric vehicles. Beyond Elon Musk's aggressive promotion, we don't see much evidence of electric cars and trucks in most places in the U.S. So, based on what we are experiencing right now, it's hard to imagine a future where almost everyone is driving an electric car. In reality, however, Many car manufacturers and their major markets, such as China, India, and Europe, are projecting electric vehicle models and sales to surpass their gasoline-powered counterparts in the coming decade. Not surprisingly, we're equally susceptible to these kinds of optical illusions or misperceptions in education. That's because, quite often, we base our understanding of what is possible on the current reality, or that which is most familiar to us. And this limited perspective can make it hard to see the real shape of things to come. In 2007, when I was Vice President of Digital Solutions for Cengage, it was difficult for people to imagine that digital course materials would account for more sales revenue than print textbooks. It was even more impossible to envision a future where open educational resources and textbooks would have a dramatic impact on publisher revenues or become something publishers had to embrace as part of their product lines. Such possible futures flew in the face of what people in the industry had always known. But in hindsight, the future we envisioned was an illusion based on our limited perception. With that in mind, here are a few of the outcomes I think are likely for education in the coming decade, outcomes that may be hard for others to see based on their current perspective. For example, 75% of high school students will take at least one college course before they graduate. Advanced placement courses will be replaced at many schools by programs that allow students to complete a full associate's degree by the time they graduate from high school. Or how about the number of courses taken at online courses in universities will be equal to or be greater than the number of courses 
taken in a traditional face-to-face -face setting. And finally, more than one-third of all higher ed institutions will abolish the current tenure system in favor of long-term contracts. Remember, this isn't about what we want to happen, nor is it limited by what we're currently seeing and experiencing. The trends are already in place. Market forces have been at work for many years, and consumer demand has already shifted. Chapter 3. The Problem with Government-Subsidized Free Tuition Plans Economists use the term rent-seeking to describe situations in which companies use their resources to generate greater wealth, not by being more productive or competitive, but by manipulating the economic environment in which they operate. A popular example of rent-seeking is when companies spend their money on political lobbyists to gain government legislation or some form of protection that will benefit them financially. This could be in the form of a government subsidy for a product it produces or through tariffs levied by the government on foreign competition. In such an example, while the company is spending money on lobbying to grow its wealth, it's not actually increasing its productivity or being innovative in ways that really benefit society. The problem with rent-seeking is that it protects companies from competition and in doing so eliminates their motivation to continue to innovate their products, services, and pricing. Rent-seeking also distorts market signals in a way that makes it difficult to understand what consumers really want or need. For example, when we offer subsidies for a product, then the price that consumers pay is artificially low. That makes it hard to determine whether or not consumers really want the product. Are they buying the product because they want it or because they want the subsidies? Is the product in its current form really worth producing? Now, if you're wondering why I'm talking about rent-seeking and subsidies, it's because they're at the heart of the recent wave of government initiatives to offer free college tuition to students in the U.S. The intended outcome of these plans, providing equitable access to a college education, is certainly laudable and definitely needed. Unfortunately, the mechanism for achieving this outcome, in other words, federal and state-funded subsidies, is fraught with problems. First, by subsidizing or underwriting college tuition at the current prices set by public institutions, we're actually eliminating any pressure on those institutions to find new and innovative ways to make their operations more efficient and their tuition rates more affordable. In addition, while free college plans can make college education more accessible to people, they will also remove incentives for colleges and universities to continue innovating their products and services. In effect, with such programs, we're saying that the current system works fine as is and can meet the diverse needs of our population. Now, I've got to admit, given the scope and the need and the number of underserved populations in the U.S., I really have trouble thinking that everything's just fine as it is. So instead of free tuition programs, why don't we focus instead on solutions that are truly affordable and sustainable? ones that institutions must support through their own innovation and competition. Why don't we encourage higher ed institutions and organizations to innovate their operations and products so that they can deliver high quality learning experiences at tuition rates that even lower income students can afford? Mm -hmm.